The job of the blender is to combine these elements in such a way as to produce an overall flavour. A wider repertoire of different beverages than ever before. I think one of the most interesting breweries and certainly one of the most interesting origin stories for a brewery in Australia. Single malts, blends, grain whiskies, bourbons and more. If you want mezcal to be sold around the world, then unfortunately you're going to have to make a compromise. This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson. And this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine and spirits and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. In season nine of the podcast, we met Grant Collins, who had recently opened the Mezcal-focused bar and restaurant Cartel in Sydney. One of the Mezcals I tasted with Grant during that interview was Kiki Riki. And the more I read about Kiki Riki, the more I thought it would be a grand idea to invite its London-based founder, Melanie Simmons, onto the show. With no background whatsoever in drinks or hospitality, Melanie's path to being a Mezcal brand owner was unconventional, to say the least. She fell in love with the spirit on visiting Mexico in 2011 and returned to London with the pretty half-baked plan, I don't think Melanie would mind me saying that, of opening a Mezcal bar underneath a kebab shop in East London. Soon after came the Kiki Riki Mezcal brand, which Melanie makes in direct partnership with families who have been producing Mezcal traditionally in their communities for generations. But I'll leave it to Melanie to tell you in her own words how Kiki Riki came to be. So I was a TV producer working in London, working on food shows. So I basically was the girl who would get the chef's recipe and look at it and go, how am I going to make that fit? Seven minutes of TV. So I kind of had to rewrite chef's recipes. And during kind of those many years I was doing that, one of the chefs I met, Thomasina Myers, she kind of and me got chatting and became friendly over several years. And, and she's kind of famous in the UK because she won a TV chef competition called MasterChef, which has gone on now to be really, really famous and worldwide. And then she started her own kind of, um, now as a chain of Mexican restaurants. And so she'd been to Mexico a lot of times. And she was kind of like, you would really love it, you should go. And, you know, nature of TV work. You're not always working for 12 months of the year. So I kind of had some months off and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So I and a friend packed our bags and went to Mexico and ended up in Oaxaca, Um, And this is kind of having a love of tequila, but not necessarily having kind of a big understanding of agave spirit. So kind of was in Puerto Escondido, which I'm not sure whether you got familiar at all. It's a very kind of famous surfy beach town in on the Oaxacan coast. About midnight, we ended up trekking back into the kind of jungle behind the beach and knocking on this door. And basically we paid 50 pesos for a jerry can, a plastic jerry can of liquid and I was kind of like, what's going on? They're like, drink it, drink it, these Mexicans that we just met. So yeah, that was my first taste of real mezcal. It turned out to be a wild tobala mezcal. It was absolutely amazing. And kind of from then on, that was like me, my first mezcal, and I loved it. I spent the next six months in Oaxaca learning about kind of mezcal, going to visit loads of palenques. And this is kind of back in 2010, 2011. So and Palenque is, is a distillery, Yeah, so Palenque is the place, yeah. uh, the distillery where mezcal is made. And they're all really, really rural. So we had to kind of travel to Oaxaca City 
um, and friends of a friend were like, oh, my dad kind of knows a guy that makes mezcal and, you know, kind of we met up with him and went out and we didn't speak any Spanish and, you know, they obviously had never seen really anyone wanting to come out and visit to, you know, their place to see their mezcal, let alone a white girl with lots of tattoos who, you know, kind of on this journey. So it was all really kind of different way back then. So we were kind of, you know, he would then introduce us to somebody else and we'd have to go and visit this guy in a bar and he knew a friend of a friend who might be able to take us out to, like, you know, visit some other mezcal producers. And it was really, like, amazing kind of to have these experiences and these really humble, amazing, friendly people who are welcoming us to their kind of, you know, their homes. People make mezcal in, you know, very kind of, like, poor areas and... You know, with that, that's it. They have like a little room they live in, and then next to the room they have built this kind of little palenque, which is is very very rustic. You know, they might have one still. Um, you know, the horse drawn kind of tohona wheel crushing the agave. They're all, you know, getting these agaves off local land. So to kind of to be immersed in that experience, you know, having sharing drinks, sharing food with them, and kind of having these kind of yeah just very unique kind of very personal experiences with the spirit so I did that for about six months absolutely as you can imagine like fell in love with kind of you know Oaxaca the people the kind of um the history of mezcal and the 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 kind of emotive kind of experiences that it gives you sadly had to come back to the UK uh to do a TV contract but kind of got back here and I was just kind of really like ugh, back in London living in my warehouse I really miss mezcal. Like, I really, really kind of that kind of, you know, raw day-to-day kind of amazing vibe. And so decided that we, you know, I was like, how can I keep it in my life? How can I have mezcal in my life every day as I've had the last kind of eight, nine months? So, and kind of went out, tried to buy mezcal. There was really very little in the UK at that time. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to open a mezcal bar. Um, and decided, like, there was really no, like, the word mezcaleria is, is basically means a bar that just sells mezcal. And if you're in um, Mexico and you go to a mezcaleria, although now it's very different back then, it literally was a cantina that had bottles behind the bar. It's a very famous uh, mezcaleria called In Situ in Oaxaca. So that, to me, is kind of the classic of how they used to be. So decided that's what we were going to do in London, for better or for worse. So found this kind of vacant basement underneath a kebab shop on Hackney Road. And we were kind of like, okay, let's see if we can do it. They've got a bar licence. The guys were like, yeah, we just use it for events. It was disgusting. Hadn't been used kind of <laughs> since the 90s. It was, it was kind of this, it had a, it's been licensed since 1983, but it's literally like a dusty kind of basement with a horrible tiled floor, like terracotta tiles, damp walls, a tiny bar that's kind of maybe a metre and a half long, like wide, at the end of the room. Disgusting toilets. So we were like, okay, we can make this work. They were like, it's going to be £300 a week rent. And we're like, right. They were like, but your licence is till 3am. And the Hackney Council had just left this place licensed for many, many years, but it had never been used. So um, we were I like... might just say, I lived in Hackney for three years, so I can like vividly imagine, I probably even know the kebab shop, to be honest. And so I can really imagine the scene that you're, that the picture you're painting for me. Yeah, I'm trying to be like, you know, it's, it's very important, I think, to kind of like try and paint this picture because 
it, it's like mezcal now these days is so like, you know, cocktail bars and all this stuff. But way back then, it really wasn't. And the bar is on Hackney Road, uh, 184 Hackney Road. So there's a kebab shop called Best Kebabs and Pizzas. And anyone that might know London will be very familiar with our kebab shops. Um, you guys in Australia, I know, have really delicious street food. Um, and we maybe don't. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, one of the places you go when you've been in the pub all day. You really need some greasy food. And it's pretty gross. So... Anyway, that's the kind of the picture of the scene. There we were. Had no money at all, obviously, um, because whoever does when they have a little vision of what they want to do. So opened this bar and called it Mescaleria Kikiriki. So going back to when I first drank mescal and the amazing people that gave it to me, we went on a boat trip um, one day and we were playing the, na- the game of like, you know, what does the animal sound like in your country? There was like maybe six or seven of us and so the cockerel, cock-a-doodle-doo. The Mexican's like, kikiriki. And then we're just like, what? And it went around the group, and it's like every single person had this ridiculous sound for the cock-a-doodle-doo. And we all just were laughing, falling around. I was like, you know what? If we ever do anything with mezcal, we're going to call it mezcalaria kikiriki. So that's the name we chose. No one can pronounce it. No one can spell it. We've got a basement in the middle of East London, and we decided we're only going to sell mezcal. So we had beer, and we had straight mezcal, and that was it like nothing else, maybe some water, but like no, no wine, no nothing else whatsoever. Kind of opened it, not knowing did what you do? Did you do some work on the on the place or? We did like, like yeah. I mean, you we said you didn't like, have any money, but did you tart it up a little bit? I mean, yeah, no, well, yeah. So we paint, like we left the floor because what can you do with a, like a tiled floor? We basically painted it all black, got loads of um, chalk. So we used chalkboard paint. We made all of our furniture out of pallets that we, um, we, we got for free around where I live, which is kind of fairly industrial. And that was kind of it. We like really didn't like, we didn't want to kind of do very much. I'm a big fan of the dive bar and some of my favorite bars across, around the world um, where I've been lucky enough to travel, people don't do a lot to them. Um, and the ones that really always stick in my memory are the ones that have a vibe and have a plan and just kind of go for it. And we were all, you know, all our money had to go into the mezcal because it's not a cheap spirit. So we kind of, yeah, did the chalkboard thing. People got all our friends to come and help us. Everyone helped us for free. Knocked up some, like, tables and chairs from pallets. Got some free tables and chairs from a pub that closed down. Got some old cinema seats. Got Bought an old jukebox for, like, £300. Bought loads of old vinyl. And tried pressing out the middle. You have to, like, press the middle of a seven-inch record when you put it into a jukebox. And if you don't get it perfectly centre, the whole thing plays really weirdly. So we had a lot of that kind of scenario going on. We opened on £2,000, which is pretty good. <laughs> we had, <laughs> we had like the, obviously we had the biggest collection of mezcal in the UK because no one really had any mezcal. I think there was four brands. So what year was this? This is 2012. So I'd got back in 2011 and then I did a TV contract and with the money I earned from that. We opened, like we started renovations in July 2012 and we opened on I think the 2nd of September. Um, so it was pretty quick turnaround. We were begging and borrowing mezcal and kind of trying to like, we obviously I'd never run a bar before. I had no idea what I was doing, what a GP was and what, you know, all we knew was like, get mezcal, put mezcal in bar, get till, make drinks, sell, get some money, <laughs> buy some more mezcal. <laughs> Which, like, looking back now, I'm glad I was really naive because, like, knowing what I know now, I would never, ever, ever, ever do that again. Um, but we did it and we just kind of, it was, you know, youth and 
love of the product. And we were so kind of passionate. And there was like four or five other really passionate people in the mezcal industry in the UK, like one DJ called Tom Bullock, who was actually fell in love with mezcal because he had it on a rider when he was doing a DJ gig in Mexico. Um, and he had started importing three or four brands that we'd kind of visited when we were out in Oaxaca. So like just through like little weird connections like that. And then there's one supplier who kind of had Del Maguey. Um, and they were like in the UK, they had three or four expressions. Sieti Mysterios had just got a deal with that importer to come into the UK. So we had, you know, those two brands. We had Papa Diablo, Sombra, who were being brought over, and then Mascarado actually, being brought over by Tom Bullock. And that was it. And everything else was like really, really bad quality mezcal, which I'm not going to name, obviously, because I've learned <laughs> that you don't, you know, but, you know, bad. It was kind of like, you know, just industrially produced mezcal. No one knew any better. So we were kind of like, all right, let's go for this. With, with a worm in the bottle? With some worms in the bottles, with all kinds. There was actually a few mezcals that weren't even from Oaxaca. They were kind of industrial ones from other states. But, you know, because there's a lot of states that make kind of a, a variation of the Oaxacan mezcal that we know. So we opened and it blew up. We were in East London. It was just, I think we were right place, right time. Mezcal was like starting to tweak on the radars of certain kind of bar tenders. And, you know, it was, again, just like being in East London, it's quite a kind of progressive thing. And people are always looking for the new hip, cool kind of thing. And, like, we just stumbled into this kind of, like, little area and it kind of kicked off. So we had gone from, like, you know, in two months, we had, like, queues of, like, 300 people trying to get into this, like, 80-capacity bar. Like, all of the bartenders from, like, East London, Shoreditch would finish their shifts and come down because we were also the only late-night bar in the area, which obviously helps. And, you know, so and people would come in being like, I'll have a vodka Coke, I'll have a whatever. And we were like, just do mezcal. Just do mezcal. <laughs> People are like, okay, I'll have a rum then. No, 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 we just do mezcal. All right, a wine. And we were like, ah. And we were pretty, you know, <laughs> blasé, not having a lot of experience and probably not the best customer service <laughs> for these moments. But it just kind of worked. Like, I didn't know. I'd never run a bar. It's hard. <laughs> I'll say that much. I'm not a cocktail maker at all. So we didn't do cocktails at first because like, I didn't know how to make them. Like, who knows how to make cocktails? So we were like, guys... It's a beer and mezcal place, you know, we can, we can do that. And then we got some slushy machines because we wanted to make margaritas. So we kind of did a range of slushies. Um, and that was it. Six months of my life, kind of, you know, 11pm until 6am. I didn't really see daylight for a long time. And this is before I even had a brand. So the bar only lasted six months? Well, it was a pop-up. So we had a, like well, a, a three-month contract because we had no idea. Right, we I didn't want to take on anything longer. The guys actually wanted to sell the business, so they were trying to get us to give them £100,000 and buy the whole place. And we were like, no, we just want to sell Mescal. So we ended up, like, running a bit longer and running a bit longer. They were like, you know, the rent went up, we were paying them £500 a week. And, you know, it kind of took its toll a little bit on us. So kind of come um, January, we'd gone through Christmas, and, you know, like, we were kind of making, like, unbelievably, like, making money and... By this point, we'd got, like, over 30 different mezcals. We were having people bring them back, you know, from Oaxaca, and people were posting them over to us. So we'd kind of got this really amazing collection. But the problem was, like, we were... The GP on our bar was really, really low through naivety um, and also <laughs> through not really, like, being able to use a quality... Me well, we could use a quality mezcal, but we were paying, like, a lot of money. Like, we were using um, Alipus, 
we'd been drinking like high quality mezcal from the start, going out visiting Palenque. So we were really uninterested in, you know, kind of the the not so great or more industrially made mezcals. They weren't really doing it for us in terms of what kind of we wanted to showcase the world of mezcal was. So with a GP of about 35%, which is really, really bad, I was kind of like, we have to do something. We have to, like, how can we make this work? How can we continue? Decided that actually I was going to start my own brand. I was like, I've, you know, met all these amazing producers and all of them are making this liquid. And a few of the ones with like younger sons and ones that, had, you know, studied in California, America, had kind of said, oh yeah, we really want to sell you some mezcal. Like, you know, we can work with you. We can, we can do something with you guys. So I kind of was like, do you know what? I'm going to make my own mezcal. I'd had a visit from two amazing guys called Stuart Eakins and uh, Richard Herbert. And they run a, ca- a company called Cask Liquid Marketing in the UK. And they had become massive fans of the bar and big like regulars. And they basically said, if you ever do anything with mezcal, we will import it for you. Um, they looked after Ocho Tequila and they introduced me to Thomas Estes, which is a whole other story in another podcast. But they were really cool. And they were like, listen, we will back you. We will support you. Like, just get the product in a bottle and we will get it over here. So around the same time, because of the late licence of the bar, we started to get a little bit of um, interest from the council and the police. Um, without going into too much detail, we actually got we lost the licence on the bar and they reduced it to a 11pm close. So obviously for us, with our late night mezcal den of iniquity, that wasn't going to work so well. So we kind of decided, I was like, Do you know what? I'm just going to actually close the bar and I'm going to go back to Mexico and I'm going to start a brand and I'm going to get it back to the UK and then we'll rethink the bar thing. So... In yeah, early 2013, I went back to Oaxaca, linked up with a family, the Mendez Blas family, who I'd met in kind of very, very early on in the days, actually, when I first arrived in Oaxaca. They're a family who've been producing mezcal for um, four generations in Santiago, Matatlan. Um, and I met the grandfather and the father and Carlos, the grandson. He's He was kind of... Um, the interpreter, as you will. He'd just moved back from California. Um, he was studying to be a pilot over there, but had come back to help his family run the business. The grandfather was quite sick, and he was the kind of master mescalero. So I went back to those guys, um, and I said, look, I want to do a brand. I want to call it Kiki Riki. And they were like, please, we would love to work with you. Let's you use the house, use our family recipe. That's the one. And like, kind of, I was like, you sure? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. So we started kind of working with those guys. How complicated was it, like, working through the legalities of an agreement with this family? Well, I mean, back then, it was all handshakes and it's all goodwill. Um, We'd spent a load of time with this family and, like, had a great time with them. And there was no one really... There wasn't any kind of clamour for mezcals. Like, there is now. You can't walk into a palenque and go, hey, I want to sell your mezcal and we'll do a handshake deal. But back then, there was, like, there was no interest in it in, in Oaxaca. It was still not particularly considered a global export. Um, and so they were just thankful to um, sell some mezcal and help me kind of... They, did, like, they, have a, they started a company and they basically dealt with everything for me to export. So, you know, the money that I would buy the mezcal and then they would bottle it and, you know, I would send them labels and do all that stuff. They had all the paperwork and they, you know, they got that in place. So the actual, you know... It wasn't that difficult to kind of get it out of the country and get it ready for export. You know, they were really amazing. They were bottling in this little kind of tiny room that actually the grandfather used to live in. And 
cask had been, okay, we're going to buy two pallets. So, you know, I had that money. So that money went to them. And I was over there and we did it. And then cask, really amazingly, are importers as well. So it, it, they actually were able to buy, you know, pick up the stock from the Palenque and then ship it over to the UK. So logistically, like, it was possible. The hard part, I guess, was, you know, finding them in the first place and making that connection and, and trusting them enough to, you know, yeah, like, go, do it, do the mezcal and do everything. It was really scary, like, um, you know, sending, at that point, like, 2,000, 3,000 pounds, I think that's what our first mezcal order cost. But yeah, even just sending that amount of money just, you know, to Mexico for these people to do that, that was probably scary, but we just kind of... Yeah, I think we trusted them and we had a good a good friendship. Um, and they made amazing mascal. So, you know, kind of, I think one thing, I, you know, I would say is that the, the friendships I've made with Mexicans and kind of with the mascal community and the people that do that back in 2010, they're still standing today. I'm still friends with all of those people. And, you know, these guys are, you know, they live by their gentleman's agreement. They will live by that. So... Um, and you're still you're still on a gentleman's uh, agreement. No, we've well, I mean, honestly, or? kind of yes. We have like a yeah. like a pretty standard contract to make mezcal, but you know, kind of the thing, kind of you know, as the the industry's changed so much in those ten years, you've seen mezcal go from a really kind of niche thing that some bars have now to most bars have a mezcal, if not several cocktail bars will have a lot, and you you know, specialist agave bars. Global, you know, you see the um, export figures for mezcal and it's kind of, you know, increased like 160% on year on year. It's kind of the fastest growing category in all of the spirit categories. Agave spirits, you know, including tequila and, and, and ricea, they are the biggest growing spirit category globally. It, it's changed so much. Back then, I wouldn't do that now. But, you know, because I did it back then, I was the first person that went to this family. I was the first person that said, I want to work with you guys. I want to work in partnership and I want to create a brand using your kind of family recipe and I want to sell that, you know, to the world. There's That family now produce, I think, for about six or seven different brands. Um, one thing I, I... An early problem, I think, we kind of avoided. I kind of went to these guys and they were making so much mezcal, but I always said, like, I'm not going to, like, do an exclusive contract because if you guys can grow and if you guys, you know, can produce more mezcal and I can't buy it, I shouldn't have the right to kind of cap your production and own what you do. So I always said to them, listen, if you get other business interests through this, as long as they don't interfere with the recipe you're doing for me and the product you make for me, and as long as you have my interest at heart, then please go ahead. And, you know, if you can employ local people and if you can make, you know, jobs in the community and kind of, you know, better yourselves and, you know, your kind of, you know, community, which is important to them, then do that. So I've seen these guys grow from having one palenque with one still to now having like three different palenques that they have built to consecutively. You know, we've increased the size of our oven. We have added in like eight stills. There's now 16 ferment tubs. They started off with four. And he works with like seven or eight different other palenques buying their kind of wild agave spirits and expressions. So I think that kind of effect of me being lucky enough to kind of see mezcal early and be on the very start of it in the UK um, and to see now how that's kind of grown and to see, you know, how many people they employ and the whole family now works for that uh, making mezcal for, um, you know, the Mendes Blasses and just that big boom. So I think that was kind of important to me to say, like, protect what you do with me 
and make mine and that's important and like give me that recipe and let's have that but obviously don't I'm not going to like contract you and I'd, I'd seen it in other places where producers were making mezcal and they a bottler would come along because it's usually the bottlers that have got the money so they'll come in and go right I'm going to let's sign a contract with that palenque and you've you could only make mezcal for us and I visited some guy um in San Juan del Rio uh, Don Modesto, and I loved his mezcal. I actually bought it for the first two years of the company Kihiriki. But he'd signed a, bo- a contract with um, a bottler who now has a mezcal brand, so I don't necessarily want to name them. And they, he'd signed away all rights to them, so he couldn't produce me- mezcal and make it and sell it to anybody else. He had to only sell it to them. And they didn't have enough clients to buy his mezcal. So I watched him go from a vibrant producer to signing a contract to then him, his stills, you know, everything was just dusty. I went back to visit him and he was kind of like, yeah, I only make mezcal like once a year. We only have like Ubel and like they can't find any other clients. So it was a little heartbreaking. He kind of ended up retiring and, and moving, you know, to California. And now that palenque is just empty, abandoned. So that kind of, I didn't really think that that was correct. And I think as, a, as an outsider, as a foreign person coming into Oaxaca, I'm already you know, commercialising a fairly kind of traditional and old, you know, way of life for them. So I wanted to be respectful. So, yeah, said, you know, listen, we all have to grow. We all want to grow. I want you guys to be successful. So got our first palettes over to the UK. And that was like, yeah, 2013. So we launched November 2013. Your mezcals are available in Australia now. Um, you And I think I saw on your website, it said something about worldwide distribution like tell me about the growth of the brand outside of the UK and have your production partner like have they been able to support that growth when you've wanted to to expand have they always you know been able to give you the product you need yeah pretty much so I I mean again I I I feel like my my journey the story is very there's a point of it where I've been very lucky and right place right time right people so obviously, yeah, we start, we launched in the UK and, um, you know, that, that for me was kind of a, a real kind of, you know, that was it. I didn't really have any aspirations. I wasn't a, a bar person, really. I wasn't a, a, you know, a brand owner. I was a TV producer who loved mezcal, so it was a hobby. And I never had really any aspirations kind of back, way back then. I was like, my God, I've just sold two pallets of mezcal and now we've got Kikiriki in the UK. That was kind of, that was it. I didn't really you know, think about it more than that. And then, you know, kind of sales, just like then we had, they bought four pallets and then they bought 10 pallets and kind of, you know, but after 12 months, I was like, wow, this is actually, this is a business. We've created a business. And for the first year, it was just the UK. And then I started to get people emailing me from other countries, just going like, hey, we've seen your mezcal. We really like, you know, love it. And we really want to kind of, you know, have it. And I was like, okay, wow, how do I do this? And I had no idea. So I was very grateful for Stu and Herb from Cask, kind of mentoring me a little bit and kind of explaining, well, okay, that's a that's an importer, that's a distributor, you have to email them, this is what you say. And I was that green, I had absolutely no idea. And I was kind of firing off these emails to people. Um, the, the guys in Australia are a good example. They're you know, a good company, quite a big company. And yeah, I just, just, just didn't really know. Um, and there was a guy called David who worked for a Bibendum who... Um, in Australia, bring Kiki Riki in. And he was amazing. I actually was lucky enough to spend time with him and his wife in Oaxaca. Um, and he helped a lot to kind of just make sure that kind of, you know, the product is legal, like the barcodes and things that I had, you know, you 
I think the most difficult aspect of this brand was actually getting the labels correct for each country. And it was the most frustrating and the most boring. And you kind of, you don't even think about that stuff when you, when you yeah. don't have that kind of knowledge of creating brands. So, you know, just with luck of having like really nice, helpful people who really love the product, they were like, right, do this. This is the barcode you need. This is the warning you need to have on your label. This is kind of, you know, what you need to do in terms of cases. So we kind of grew fairly slowly. And, you know, I've explained kind of how I didn't want to kind of limit the palenques I was working with to just doing my stuff because I think it was fair. What I also wanted to be was a single palenque mezcal. So kind of not really with the knowledge that we might ever get to the point where one palenque couldn't make my mezcal, but just I thought it was really important to, you know, showcase that family. That family is everything. If it wasn't for the family making mezcal, so that recipe, Kiki Riki, is, is, is just a name on a bottle that has nothing in it. So the celebration of the Mendes Blas work and their dedication, 80 plus years of making mezcal, I was kind of like, so I only ever want to get Kiki Riki's, only ever going to made by that family in that place, in that palenque. So single palenque, that's kind of what that means. And it means that, like, like they would never buy in mezcal and mix big batches. So you'll see, I think, more so now and kind of 2014, 15, when mezcal you know, start to blow up, you'll kind of, there was brands that were perhaps buying mezcal from lots of different producers, bringing it in centrally, mixing it up all together to be able to kind of meet the orders that were coming in from kind of USA and places like that. And it didn't really appeal to me to kind of have that mix. You know, I didn't want to be so big that we were just kind of, you know, mass producing kind of a, you know, even if it was just from the same village, it's still, you're losing kind of that, family, that kind of authenticity and the story I think that actually makes mezcal connect with a, a drinker is the fact you literally can visually see all the way back to the, you know, right back to the actual place it's made. So we were kind of conscious of that I only wanted to grow at a level that the family, the Mendes family could produce at. So we were kind of quite particular. We launched in America through a really good friend of mine, Diane, who actually started an import company specifically for Kiki Riki. We were selling in San Francisco and, you know, kind of down the coast in California. Then we went to Australia, who have been kind of actually one of my best and amazing uh, places to sell. I really like, appreciate the Australians' love of agave. I think it's kind of mirrored what I saw in the UK, the kind of, you know, we've, we've seen you guys kind of try it and embrace it, and it's really kind of boomed. I mean, you can probably tell me a little bit better you know, the growth, I think, of mezcal and the kind of the, the popularity of it over the last five to six years, I think, you know, has, has been really awesome. Hong Kong as well, we're kind of selling in there and then obviously into Europe. So picking places that um, would um, be open to kind of my brand specifically. And I think the point of my brand is that I'm an affordable mezcal. I didn't want it to be like a snobby elitist brand. I was like, all the money I have is going to go into the liquid. Doesn't really matter what kind of bottle it's in. Get a really like amazing design on my label, but I'm not going to, you know, use kind of artisanal papers and kind of not waste money because I see there's a market for that. But every penny that I save on kind of, you know, the packaging and whatever, I put it put, goes into the liquid and it means that we can kind of pay, you know, a good price to the workers. 
and keep the ABV high and pay the taxes and make sure that, you know, people are getting, when they have mezcal, when they want to try mezcal, there's Kiki Riki available for them. And what they're going to get is a very true representation of what you would get on a table in Oaxaca any given, you know, lunchtime, any given evening. There's a full bottle of it and it's there to enjoy. Tell us about the products that you've got in your in your portfolio. Okay, so Kiki Riki Espadin. So that is the mezcal I started with. That is the family recipe of the Mendes Blas. So that's like a real kind of peppery, un- unapologetically smoky, kind of big, bold-flavoured mezcal. So we sell that kind of, that's, that's our probably 90% of our sales. That's the one that you'll find on the cocktail menus, on the table, and it's like, it's the best that I will drink day in, day out. Um, I love it. And then kind of, that was the first one we did. And for a couple of years, we only did that mezcal. But I think as the interest in mezcal grew and has the, you know, the ability to be able to introduce different agaves to people grew, we kind of looked at producing a seasonal range of wild agaves. So we work with three different other palenques and we buy our agave obviously now from all over Oaxaca so we have a madraquiche that um is delicious so I know you guys have that over there again these are not always available so different countries have different mezcals but I know you guys have got a madraquiche which is 100% wild takes around 15 to 20 years to grow made by a really really cool family uh we don't really talk about kind of where the palenques are these days like I said because the world of mezcal has changed a lot and you have to be a little protective now of your sources. So we have a Mexicano as well, which is actually made by the Mendez family. They buy the agaves from about three and a half hours northeast of their village, Santiago Matatlan. We have an Ensemble, which you guys actually don't have yet, which is, as again, the, the, the world of mezcal has, has changed and wild agaves are a whole different kind of subject. And for a while I didn't do work with wild agaves because... We, you know, you can't really say they're sustainable if you're taking them from the wild. And they weren't really um, semi-cultivated when I very first started. These days, a lot more people are growing um, wild agave semi-cultivated. So we kind of started to work in those fields. And like I said, we only do a limited amount. So Madraquiche, Mexicano. We have a Tepestate. That's the other one. So those are our three kind of... And a Tobala, which super limited and we're not actually doing it at the moment because there aren't any because they're like I say because they're wild and because they're kind of things I'm conscious not to sell too much of we kind of yeah we'll sell them sometimes so we kind of release an ensemble which is a mixture of espadin base and then we have two different wild agaves and I did this specifically because I wanted it to be slightly more sustainable with espadin they're kind of widely grown my family now own fields of agave and grow their own Um, About 30% of what we use is grown by them. So it's a kind of easier way to get an affordable kind of flavour of wild agave to people so they can taste the tepestate and the quiche, which is what we mix with our espadin. So it's an equal blend, so 33.333% of each one. And it's affordable. Wild agaves, again, rightly so, they're going to cost you three times as much as espadin. They take three times as long to grow in some circumstances and yield is tiny. How different are the flavours um, of, of the different agaves? It really makes a massive difference. Yeah, it? like, like grape varieties or something. I like mean, that. it's kind of it's hard to describe a, the flavour of an agave because every single agave producer they'll taste different, and the pr- production process because handmade will make it taste different and the natural ferment. But there's kind of a, a, a like a very a broad spectrum of flavours. So an espadin will always be peppery, 
and it will be, you know, kind of quite kind of uh, caramelly, quite sweet. Then you get a tepestate, which is always, for me, like really intense, like really vegetal, really green flavours. And like barrels can be kind of different, the whole family. So every agave is really, really different. They take from between five years to kind of 35 years to grow. So you can't, I mean, I'd suggest like just try as many as you can. Like if you're liking mezcal and you're liking espadin and you see something else, I mean, like have a little sip, have a little taste. I don't like them all um, at all. I mean, there's a agave called habali, which kind of people rave about. But for me, it's too much. It's like they can be really intense um, and they're not all smoky. And, you know, some of them are really sweet. Some of them are really vegetal. Some of them are really minerally. You have to think of it kind of, I guess, like wine, where all the different grapes are kind of they're the same thing and they grow, in the, you know, they're in the same family and the same genus. But actually the flavours you get are going to be massively different. So I think it's just a case of like for us, you know, for me, it was just trying and trying and trying as much as I possibly could. I would still say my favourite agave is Espadin because... A well-made espadin can give you the flavours of a wild, you know, wild agave, which that's testament down to the, the producer, the maker, how the agave has been grown, etc. So for me, I don't like, like, you don't have to like the wild agaves. You don't have to have a, really, a favourite something else. Like you, it, it's, it's absolutely fine to be happy with espadin. Like, it's probably a little bit unfashionable to say that. But, like, for me, espadin is, like, the one that we know it grows well. We know that it's kind of, you know, as sustainable as agave can ever be. It has a seven, five to eight year life cycle, but that a seven is kind of the average. And when you're drinking it, you can kind of be fairly confident about, you know, what you're going to get. And, you know, you're not kind of putting pressure on the agave kind of, you know, growing kind of climate out there. So that's kind of, yeah, that's where I go. But like there's, there's, over kind of 200 agave species. I think at the current, as we speak now, the CRM who actually authorised and export and legalised the export of mezcal, they recognised 38 different agaves for use in Oaxaca, just in Oaxaca. So it's kind of, it's a big field. Um, and yeah, like I, I can't tell you what they taste like, but you just have to try them. And like, they always taste different as well, each batch, which is just another added level of complexity but yeah just like I mean I would like I say I love arakenio but I've also drank arakenio that I really didn't like at all some of them can be really gassy and like really kind of earthy um it, it's it's just yeah try and then and then see if you like it but a limitless and endless um, possibilities with agave flavors and kind of styles and varieties and you've got a pechuga or two in your range as well, I believe. Maybe you could um, tell us about those. Yes, I absolutely. So that was kind of, I hoped you were going to ask me about these. So way, way, way back when I visited and met the Mendez family for the first time, they were, mo- they were making espadin and they weren't really dealing in wild agave. Um, there was no market for it and it's like, it's, it's expensive to produce. So what the family and what Carlos kind of showed me was these three different distillates. And so the family um, make their own mole paste, black mole, and they also roast their own coffee beans, um, and they roast cacao. So he, we, they had these three distillates, and they are made kind of in the style of a pechuga mezcal. So if I explain that first. So for celebrations in Zapotec culture specifically, they'll make a, a mezcal that's kind of for parties. It could be a marriage, a death, you know, at Christmas, some kind of festivity. 
So they'll take a mezcal that's, you know, been made, an espadin, it can be anything actually, but for them it was an espadin mezcal. So their family recipe that is now Kiki Riki's kind of signature house mezcal. And then they will macerate that with flavours for around two weeks. So when you say pachuga traditionally, people assume automatically, pachuga means breast, so chicken breast. So traditionally it was actually a turkey that was kind of hung in a still. So they macerate the mezcal with fruits and spices and things that are available to them at the time of production. And then they distill a third time. And when they're distilling, they put the mezcal into the still and on the top they'll hang a piece of turkey at the breast, the kind of some part of the, the turkey or bird or chicken or whatever. Usually it's an old female bird. That's kind of the, the general rule. You don't use anything young because you want all the flavours. And as that distills, the kind of condensation comes up and it kind of, you know, the, the meat kind of essentially cooks, but the essence of the meat comes out and then you have the liquid. It imparts a really umami kind of richness and then you get all the complexity of the fruit. So like that's essentially a pachuga. What I was actually then later out be told by many Zapotec producers and families that pachuga actually also in Zapotec means from the heart. So a pachuga mezcal means from the heart and it's for celebration. So it doesn't necessarily have to have a piece of raw meat in it. And this is what my family were doing. So they were making a pachuga mezcal, one with the mole. So they put the mole into the mezcal, left it for two weeks, and then they distilled that. And then obviously you get a mezcal that's a slightly higher ABV because of the... Uh, it intensifies, and so 48, 49 ABV, sometimes 54. And then I was blown away by it because you're having this mezcal that's, you know, got all of those espadin, peppery kind of sweet caramel flavours, and then you've got all of the flavours of the mole, so the chocolate and the nuts and the herbs. And mole has like 18, 19 different um, ingredients in it. And they're also, yeah, buying wild coffee from the mountains, roasting that and then doing exactly the same thing with a coffee pachuga. So again, two weeks distilling and you get, again, it's just complexity and it's so delicious. You, I mean, it's a real kind of treat. So you don't sit and drink loads of it. And they have a cacao one as well. So I know you guys have got the mole pachuga, which was my favourite by far. And what an amazing representation of Oaxaca and you know, the country that I love. Mole is really the, the food of Oaxaca. They have so many different types of moles. If you've never tried one, like, have a look at it online. It's, it's basically a thick black kind of stew, the sauce that's used to coat meats. And it's kind of, yeah, it's really sweet, kind of ashy, has bread in it, nuts, fruits, and like all these kind of flavours that are really kind of incomparable. And so, yeah, I had like had mole and kind of actually slightly horrified the first time I ate it, didn't like it, but have grown to love it. And yeah, to have a mezcal and to be able to kind of marry those two things and put it in a bottle and then go like, there's a mole pachuga. Uh, we do a version with turkey in and one without. But actually, I really prefer the um, one without any meat in it. Uh, not because I don't like eating meat, but just like the lightness of it. They're very heavy when they have the meat in them. My thing with mezcal as well, I like it's, it's totally fine. Like you don't have to be an expert to enjoy mezcal. And I think I really want to you know, stress that. Mezcal can be expensive and it's quite, you know, it can be really kind of almost closed off because there's not a lot of people that will go out and spend in Australian dollars. I don't know what kind of mezcals are selling for, but in the UK, a decent bottle of mezcal, which Kiki Riki is, is going to be at least, you know, like a bit more than kind of vodkas, gins, rums. It kind of sits up with the kind of whiskies um, and expensive agave. So like tequilas that are like really well made. So mezcal doesn't come in at like bargain level and if it does I'm not 
favourable of it because I don't think it should be when you look at the process. If you can get past that and if you do want to try it and you like it, there are affordable ones there. Um, and like I say, yeah, start with an S for dinner. What you, the things you need to look for, is it made by one producer? Do they have the name of the, and the place where it's made? Those kind of things. Like it, there's different categories of mezcal. So you can have industrial mezcal, which has no words apart from mezcal on the bottle. I'm not a massive fan, but I understand the need to have something industrial, you know, because the global market uh, wants mezcal. Then you have a middle category called artisanal. And this is what Kiki Riki is. We don't love the, the classifications. They're done by the government because it's still allowed for some industrial processes. And then you have ancestral mezcal, which is super handmade, very expensive. Clay pot distillation, like amazing stuff. But like, I, I don't suggest you go straight there, you know, if you haven't tried mezcal. And if you're in, you know, try something artisan where it says artisanal. But if you can, it'll probably say traditional rather than, you know, artisanal again. Industrial processes can be used within that category. So I class Kiki Riki as a traditional mezcal. So we are made by one family in one location and we are still made in the traditional way, as in we pit roast the agave in a big kind of fire pit using kind of, you know, wood fired uh, rocks, volcanic rocks and cupboards. We use a volcanic stone tohona, so not a concrete kind of like, you know, uh, built tohona wheel. Ours is actually one piece of volcanic rock. They've had it for a long time in the Palenque. And actually, the whole tohona is made out of volcanic rock again. So for flavour and kind of for authenticity, for traditional, that's how they used to be made. So not kind of built out of concrete and bricks. So we have horses and mules um, pulling the tohona wheel. My family that make my mezcal are amazing. They are cowboys and they have many horses and they, you know, they, they work animals, but they, they look after them really well. So I don't have a problem with them, you know, using those uh, animals to pull the wheel. And we do a natural ferment. So using airborne yeast. So the cooked agave goes into a wooden vat. Uh, some spring water is added. We have a spring, a well on site in the Palenque. And that's left uncovered. Just the natural yeasts will kind of ferment it. It can take a couple of weeks, depending on the temperature, and then we double distill in 300 litre copper, pot, copper, you know, pot stills. So alembic stills, as you guys go. So not column stills, not refrescas, which are like a one distillation with plates, which is like a version of column. And that kind of, to me, is a traditional process. We don't mess around with the ABV so much. When you naturally double distill a agave spirit, the ABV can be anywhere from 45 up to kind of 55, 56 ABV, depending on like many factors. So to keep it kind of uh, affordable and drinkable, my family would always add, um, if they they'd get it down to about 46, 46.5% ABV by just by blending the heads, hearts and tails, and then they add a little bit of spring water to bring that to 45 ABV, and that's okay. Like, some people are like, oh, well, if you add water, uh, it's not real mezcal. It's like, guys, families have been doing this for hundreds of years, <laughs> so it's okay. I've tried it at 55 Every single ABV. And honestly, it's the kind of sweet spot. If you bring it down below 45 ABV, I think you start to lose the kind of viscosity, the richness, and those kind of very amazing flavours. Unlike whiskey and some, you know, gins, etc., adding water sometimes can open up a spirit. But with mezcal, sadly, it doesn't really do that. You get a lot of bitter notes and, and kind of unpleasant kind of flavours. So my family, very early, the grandfather sat me down the first time I met him and said... Melanie, if a mezcal is not 45 ABV, 
If it's below that, don't drink it. It's for tourists. The Mexicans don't drink mezcal if it's below 45. So I kind of <laughs> live by that. And that's, you know, yeah. represented kind of in, in our range. We've been talking for over an hour and it's been awesome. We might leave it there if that's okay. Absolutely, I've learned yes. so much and, you know, it's such a great story. So um, thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with us on the Drinks Adventures podcast. Yes, thank you so much for um, inviting me on to talk. Um, I love, obviously love it, and it's very, it's a passion of mine. So I appreciate everyone putting up with my rambling answers. Um, I hopefully people find it interesting. And yeah, like it, it's go out and learn more. It's a really great thing to kind of get into. Again, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be able to share some stories with you. The Drinks Adventures podcast is produced by me, James Atkinson, with additional production and mixing by Dave Robertson. You can find complete transcripts, links, and other information on the show at drinksadventures.com.au. You can follow me on all social media platforms at by James Atkinson. Like my Facebook page, James Atkinson Drinks Adventures, to be kept informed of podcast giveaways and other news about the show. The Drinks Adventures podcast needs your support as listeners. Please do us a favour and leave an honest review and rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We love hearing your feedback and it helps inform other people this is a show worth listening to. Or simply drop us a line at hello at drinksadventures.com.au.